Hello, and welcome to Thrive, a podcast that gives you strategies and inspiration to help you live your best life. Learn from us, two cancer survivors, as we show you how we don't just survive, but thrive. Hi, I am Garth Callahan, the original Napkin Notes dad. I'm a seven-time cancer survivor, but more importantly, I'm the Napkin Notes dad who has been writing notes to his daughter, Emma, and sticking them into her lunch ever since kindergarten. Hi, I'm Dara, creator of CrazyPerfectLife.com, a place to go to help you find meaning each day and live your best life, and author of the book, Crush Cancer, available on Amazon. We have such a beautiful guest today, Brooke McCallery, who is the author of Slow, which is an incredible book, Slow, Simple Living for a Frantic World. And we are so happy to have you, Brooke. Thank you for being here. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I want to read something from your book for our audience, and I think this will give them a little glimpse into kind of where you were, and I love this. This is at the front of her beautiful book, and she writes, Dear Mr. and Mrs. Jones, I am writing to inform you of my withdrawal from the race to keep up with you. It has come to my attention that prolonged attempts to compete with you have been detrimental to my health, my bank account, my self-confidence, and my ability to feel content. This is a price I am no longer willing to pay. And she goes on to say a lot more beautiful, wise words. But Brooke, tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got to this place to write those words. (laughs) My journey towards slow sort of starts about eight years ago when my life was anything but slow or simple or mindful or peaceful. I was burning the candle at both ends and the middle, trying to keep up with what I thought, you know, a successful life should look like. I was running my own jewelry label from home. I had a uh, baby girl and we were pregnant with our second baby. We were renovating. We'd just moved out of the city into, you know, a lovely cottage that we were extending and making bigger. And my husband had this job that he worked 80 hours a week at. And, you know, all of these things that we thought we should be doing in order to live the kind of life we should aim for. And I realized after our second baby was born and I was diagnosed with severe postpartum depression that none of it was making me happy. And even the things in my life that should have brought me joy weren't because I was so exhausted, so burnt out, so tired from trying to keep up with the pace of life. So really my personal journey began when my psychiatrist suggested very gently that maybe I should consider doing a little less in life. And initially I was offended at this idea, but gradually came to understand that there was wisdom there, you know, and there was healing there and there was something very important and elemental, I think, that I needed in slowing down. But I felt like there was something wrong with me because I'd look around and everyone was rushing and competing on how busy they were and how sleep deprived they were. And here I was trying to go the opposite direction. So I started writing about it and eventually started podcasting about slow living. And I realized that there were so many people like me and my family. It's just that not many people were talking about this idea of slowing down. So really, that's kind of the the seed of the book right there. It's designed to share my story, but also share the idea of slow living, give people permission to start to slow down. I love everything that you said. And I know so many people listening to this will absolutely be able to resonate with everything you said, because you're right, we do compete with, you know, how little sleep we get and how much we're doing. And I don't really know how it got to be that Mm. way. But it feels like that's kind of the norm for everyone. Yeah, I I think it's just become 
how we are. You know, we ask people, how are you? And we don't necessarily answer, I'm well, or, you know, I've been ill or something. We, we say, oh, I'm busy. How are you? You know, it's just the way we compare lives now. And you know, one thing I really love about you, Brooke, is that you talk openly and honestly about the way you were feeling and the fact that you were feeling a little bit of a depression and then you did go to a psychiatrist because I feel like, and Garth and I are such big believers in, you know, having a counselor, psychiatrist and continuing to talk through issues, but so many people don't talk about that. Yes. And that was something I discovered as well. When I was diagnosed with the postpartum depression, again, I looked around and I didn't know anyone that had been diagnosed. I didn't know anyone who went to a psychiatrist. I didn't know anyone who who sought counseling or therapy even until I started talking about it. And then I realized I was surrounded by people who had gone through similar things, but there was power in sharing those stories. So I decided really early on that I was never going to, to hide it. You know, I was never going to pretend that It wasn't there, even though that was my tendency to pretend that everything was fine. I thought and I knew how important it was to share that story. So what did your friends say when you started to, I'm assuming because you started to sort of incorporate slow living, people around you must have noticed that things were a little bit different. I think they they did eventually. I mean, the first people to, to recognize any change were my husband. My kids were very young at the time, so they probably didn't notice anything really. And probably my parents, my siblings. Initially, my husband thought that it was just part of my healing process. You know, I was decluttering a lot. That's sort of the way I began this whole process because I wasn't in the mental space to sit down uh, and meditate. I honestly think my head would have exploded had I tried to meditate at that time in my life. So I decluttered and he thought that that was just part of the process until about six months in and he realized that not only had our home become more spacious, but I had changed as well. You know, I used to have, I used to be very reactionary, any little slight, any little bump in the road, any, any little problem would kind of send me off reeling off into some sort of temper outburst because I had no margin or buffer in my life. And by decluttering and and letting go of the the emotional clutter attached to that stuff, I started to create some margin or buffer. And I think that was one of the first big changes that he noticed, probably one of the first big benefits really for everyone. And it was about that point that he asked me whether I had joined a cult or not. <laughs> and yeah, that was really, I guess, the first time anyone had, had paid close attention to the shift. Uh, and after that, it was just a gradual change in our home. You know, our home became more inviting. It became somewhere we wanted to stay and invite people to spend time. And then also just in my approach to parenting and everything really had had begun to shift. And that's where I think maybe the wider circle of friends started to notice a difference. So how does someone begin to declutter? Slowly, I think would be my first piece of advice. I, as an overachiever at the time, I decided the best way to become a minimalist or to, to become someone who had slowed their home was to declutter everything in a weekend. So we had this two-car garage in our backyard. And I thought, well, the best place to begin, of course, would be the two-car garage, which was so full of boxes of stuff that we'd never parked our car in there. And that was just a disaster. I mean, I started sorting through boxes and and making piles and getting overwhelmed. And uh, I just left it all in the center of the garage floor for about a year because I just had no idea how to deal with all of this stuff. So I went to the opposite end of the spectrum and started very small. You know, I started with my purse and my handbag and the glove compartment of my car and, and really small 
actionable, easy to achieve sort of um, tasks. And that actually added up a lot more quickly than trying to do the garage all in one go. Talking about slow, I've been in the process of decluttering for over a year. Mm -hmm. And I started a year ago last summer and I have a fairly small home office. It's, I don't know, maybe 12 by 12, probably less. It's the smallest room in the house, which is perfect. I don't need a lot of space to do my work, but I found myself just feeling anxious whenever I was in the office, not because of the work, but because I felt like everything was closing in on me. Mm -hmm. And so I took very very painstakingly steps to take everything off of my shelves and only put back the things on the shelves that had strong emotional value for me. If it was a book that I had read and I'll never read again, or if it was a gift somebody had given me that I just put on the shelf for one reason or another, or whatever it was, I brought everything to goodwill. I threw things out. I took out probably eight or 10 garbage bags worth of stuff that summer. Wow. And even with that, in this little tiny office, I still find myself doing the same thing over and over and over again. And sometimes it's because, you know, well, I got another stack of junk mail or I really, you know, I've taken some time to scan some documents and they're electronic now. I don't need to hold on to the paper or somebody sent me, my dentist gave me Star Wars Pez dispensers, <laughs> uh, which, you know, I love the sentiment behind them. But to be honest, I really don't need that extra candy and I don't need the Pez dispensers and, you know, it needs to go away. Right. <laughs> well, you bring up kind of a good point, though, which are we ever really done with decluttering? I mean, Brooke, what have you found? Is it something that is like an ongoing just way to live or do we finish and then kind of six months goes by and then we say, OK, it's time to do it again? I think that it's kind of both of those things because what I discovered when I when I started was that I tried to focus on the end result, right? And I pictured what it would look like. And based on my reading of minimalism blogs and, you know, Instagram and all these things, it looked a particular way. So when I worked towards decluttering and it never looked the way I had envisaged, I was always left feeling like I wasn't quite doing it right, you know? So I think that setting out with a particular goal in mind is great as long as we don't have expectations on what that goal will look or feel like. But what I also have discovered is that it's it's a process, you know, and it's a process that we can't rush. So much like you, Garth, I used to declutter a space and then I would come back to it after maybe three or six months and having thought that I had decluttered it already and I would look around and I would realize that so much of what had felt like important stuff or non-negotiable must-keep things had in the interim period sort of drifted into becoming clutter. And I think that that's sort of a just a recalibration of what enough looks like. So I rather than, you know, attach our sense of success or failure in, in simplifying our homes to an outcome, I think it's more about understanding it's a process and really focusing more on how it makes us feel in our homes rather than what necessarily that looks like. Besides decluttering, what are some of your very favorite slow ways to live? My morning rhythm is probably the foundation of slow for me. And it's evolving. It's always sort of shifting and changing as my, my needs and circumstances shift and change. But if I can carve out 
some time to myself in the morning. It might be five or 10 minutes. It might be an hour. In that time, I will usually do some kind of combination of making a coffee (laughs) and sitting down and journaling. I like to do the Julia Cameron's morning pages from The Artist's Way uh, or perhaps 10 minutes of meditation and or perhaps maybe five or 10 minutes of yoga. And I very rarely would I get a morning where I get to do all of those things. But if I can start my day with one ritual of slow, then I feel like I'm really grounded, really well grounded for the day ahead, no matter what it brings. I love that. And I totally agree. We talk a lot about self care on this podcast. And I 100% believe that the way you start your day is sort of the way you finish in a way like it totally drives how you're feeling. And if you can start out having just even three minutes to yourself to just like you said, feel grounded or just kind of think about your day or set your intention or meditate, then Mm -hmm. for myself, it's been a complete game changer when I started living that way. So I love that you said that. Do you have any specific ways to kind of close off your day or any type of um, rituals that you do before you go to sleep? The one thing that I really love to do at night is have a cup of tea of some type and I go to bed and I read. And sometimes I will read for five minutes before I, I fall asleep or get sleepy. And other times it'll be half an hour or even an hour. I love finishing the day analog you know I used to go to sleep with my phone next to the bed Mm. and I would spend the last 15-20 minutes of my day flicking through social media or checking you know my email or reading news and it probably maybe four years ago I realized that that was having a huge impact on my mental health and my ability to get to sleep so I did some research and realized that screen time so close to bed was actually, it was stopping me from being able to get to sleep and also stopping me from getting into deep sleep because of the, you know, the blue lights of modern tablets and phones and stuff. So finishing analog has been one of the best switches I've made. Um, and my husband and I actually did an experiment about 18 months ago where we created a screen-free bedroom you know, no phones, no computers, no anything allowed in our bedroom. And that has stuck for 18 months. And and it's made it so much easier to finish the day with that sort of slow, gentle ritual heading towards sleep. Was he resistant to that? Because I love that idea. But anytime I've ever tried to kind of suggest that to my husband, he kind of looks at me like, there is no way you are (laughs) ever going to do that. Um, he, you know, he was skeptical. I think that it was possible, I think, but dressing it as an experiment, you know, like, a, let's just see what happens I'm if. Gonna I'm going to that. Yeah, it made it kind of fun because we both were experimenting and experiencing that at the same time. And we both got to see the benefits and the challenges, you know, like, what do we use as an alarm clock, for example, and all that kind of stuff. But we got to do that together. And I think that was the major difference rather than it feeling like I was pushing for a change that he didn't want to make. Talk a little bit about your kids. And I know your kids were really young when you started this, but sort of some of the positive impacts that you can see your slow journey has had on them. One of the things that I'm constantly in wonder of with our kids is their imagination and their willingness and ability to to find fun or play or wonder actually in any moment you know so we've just spent five months traveling around the states and Canada on my book tour and I was quite nervous about you know maybe how much screen time that they would have in the car if we were driving 10 hours a day or or things like that 
And it was really wonderful to see that the work that we had put in and the decisions that we had made over the previous you know, nine years of being parents had started to pay off in that they didn't want to be on their their iPads the whole time and they, they didn't want to kind of just be passively sitting in their car for six hours. Instead, they wanted to play or they wanted to listen to audiobooks or they wanted to talk and we played, you know, word games and all that kind of stuff. And I, I think that exemplifying what slow looks like and what it looks like to not constantly be connected to my tech has really allowed them to see that there is a whole breadth of options available to them and it doesn't need to be connected to the internet, doesn't need to be, you know, digital. And I think that that's really held them in good stead. I mean, they're seven and nine, so they're still quite young, but they very much, they still love play and they they have a real, I guess, innocence to them as a result of that. But I also think that growing up in a house where I didn't necessarily let them have a huge amount of stuff, they had plenty of toys. I didn't, you know, didn't make them miss out on anything, but they also understand the value of having space in their house. I mean, one of our kids is a real collector and that's fine and he has his space for collecting his his things, but he also likes having empty space and doesn't have to clean up all the time. And I think that they're they're growing up with the understanding of those benefits as well, which hopefully will hold them in good stead as they, they grow older. This episode is probably going to come out right around the holiday season. So how are you going to incorporate slow practices with gift giving? How does that work? Yeah, they seem kind of counter to each other, don't they? Yeah. So I'm, I'm actually kind of curious because Garth and I are, you know, we're such big believers in it's not about stuff. It's not about materialism. It's about the people in our lives that really matter. But, you know, sometimes it's easy to kind of forget that during gift giving season, if you will. Right. And I think, honestly, the answer lies somewhere in the middle. I mean, there's argument for completely doing away with gift giving, but then there's also people who really, like, that is a love language. You know, that is how people show love and and affection. And I never advocate for an all or nothing kind of approach with gift giving. But with our kids, we tend to focus more on experiences over stuff. So um, we're traveling at the moment, but previous years we have given them things like a season ticket to the zoo or to the local kids theater or to the water park, things like that, that we can then do together. So it's not only a gift of an experience for them, but it's also a gift of time spent together. Of that. Yeah. And I think that we've sort of extended that out to our families as well over the years. First of all, we've really simplified the number of gifts we give and each family, we just do a, you do a secret Santa kind of gift mm-hmm. draw thing. And then I just gift either a charitable donation in the name of someone in my family or an experience, you know, tickets to a concert or a football game or, or something that I know that they'll enjoy. And it sort of allows us to focus more on spending time together rather than the stuff involved. I love everything about that. And I hope more and more people, I feel like people really are starting to kind of take that on because I think people are just realizing that it's exhausting to feel like you have to buy all these gifts for people and it costs a lot of money and probably a lot of people that you're giving gifts to don't even really need what you're buying Mm -hmm. them. It is the gift of time that matters the most. Yeah, I I really hate the, I I, I can't even come up with a good phrase for it, but the trade gift, right? So I give you this, you give me that. And, and neither one of us really want either one of one. Right, right. And I find that I've tried to get out of that habit with my wife, Lisa, because, you know, look, we're both grown ups, um, and we both have the ability to go buy something that we really want and we don't have to wait for Christmas. Right. I've asked her, 
to please limit gifts to things like experiences or mm -hmm. books. Some, you yep. know, because I'm I'm a, I'm a huge book lover, and especially if there's a book that I'm going to read more than once, I want a physical copy of that book. But I would much rather go to a baseball game or to a dinner experience that we'd never have if it wasn't a gift or something that is just unique to the time spent. I don't need, well, actually, I do need another fountain pen, but please, you know, right. So I, I wouldn't want her to pick that out for me. I would want to, you know, go out on my own, but give me something that we can spend time doing together that we probably wouldn't necessarily think of on, you know, I wouldn't think of on my own. Right. And I think time is the ultimate luxury in, you know, this day and age where everyone feels like there's not enough of it. So to gift someone time spent together is like doubly powerful, I think. So I, I once read, um, I think it was last year, about a grandmother who uh, wanted to gift her grandchildren time. So she packaged up 12 envelopes and inside each envelope she had written a voucher for an experience with grandma you know it might have been a one day at the movies a day at the zoo a picnic at the park so on and then the kids got to open those envelopes once a month every month for the year and they got to have those 12 days spent with their grandmother that they otherwise wouldn't have had and I just think that that's one of the most powerful examples of what we stand to gain if we're a little more mindful about what we give and we can give something as simple as time. I mean, my parents always gift my husband and I a voucher to a, a lovely restaurant where we live, but they also gift babysitting, you know? So I think that that's, Perfect. yeah, I think that's a wonderful example of, of what it can look like. Uh -huh. Oh, I love all of that. So tell our listeners if they are loving everything that you're saying, maybe how can they begin to really say, okay, I want to live a little bit slower besides buying your beautiful book, which is again called Slow, Simple Living for a Frantic World. What are some tips that they could begin to incorporate in their lives? I think that one of the first places to begin is to ask yourself why you want to slow down, you know, what, what you stand to gain by slowing down. Because I think by really focusing in on that thing that you're working towards, whether it's more time or more energy or more space, um, you know, or having to work less to be able to live a, you know, fulfilled life, whatever it may be. If you write that down and you make that your intention or your mantra or, you know, the thing that you keep in the back of your mind anytime you need to make a decision about saying yes to something or saying no to something. What that then does is really fortifies, you know, your decision to slow down and, and exemplifies what you stand to gain. So I think the first thing I wish I wish I had have been able to do that at the beginning of my journey because I think it would have made things a lot simpler, not necessarily easier to do. So I think first just tap into the the why, but then just choose an entry point that feels right for you. I mean, you may want to start decluttering. That's a pretty common place, but you also may want to start just by nominating two minutes a day to just sit with a cup of tea and not do anything, you know, and that's your entry point to slow. Or it could be turning your phone off at 6.30 and not PM and not turning it back on again till the morning, you know, whatever kind of boundary or task or, or, or change you want to start with, just start there and, you know, understand that it's, a process because from one discovery from one habit from one change you will find that the next one kind of appears so I started decluttering 
never expecting that it would lead me to to start meditating. But it did because what decluttering did was create space in my home but also space in my head because I was letting go of all this emotional clutter that was attached to my stuff, which then allowed me the space and the energy to start doing things like meditation or, or you know, mindfulness. And while that's an important thing to keep in mind, I think the most important thing to keep in mind is to start small. Oh, I love all of that. Thank you. The pleasure. So Dara and I often, we walk along this same path and we're moving definitely in the same direction. Sometimes she's a few steps ahead of me, I will admit. Uh, <laughs> but we, what's interesting is that we actually come at issues usually from very opposite perspectives. You know, Dara is very much the person who is very involved with self-care already and very in tune to what she and her family needs. I kind of throw technology at things and you'd commented about decluttering. And one of the things I do from a technology standpoint is I actually put everything I can into this program called Evernote. Mm -hmm. And let me dump everything that I have, whether it's my eye prescription or my last doctor's visit or this spaghetti sauce that I want to try or you name it, right? So dump everything into Evernote and then I can make it searchable and find what I need later and I don't need to think about it today. And also, if there's a paper copy, like my eye prescription, I don't need that paper copy anymore. Right. I really, I'm decluttering both my mind and my file cabinet at the same time. You had commented about turning your phone off. I started doing this a while ago that I set up an automatic do not disturb. And it works from a certain time in the evening until a certain time in the morning. The only reason why my phone would make a noise between those hours is it if my daughter or wife needed me? Right. So what and are the times that you have that? So I think during the week, I have it set to eight at night until seven in the morning. And then on the weekends, I think I extended it because I'm, I have a tendency to stay up. So nine o'clock, but ending at nine o'clock the next morning. You know, I don't need to know all of these things that my phone would normally be beeping for. You know, I don't miss the fact that somebody commented on an Instagram post at 11 o'clock at night. Right. It also gives me the reassurance that if Emma or Lisa called oh, or texted God. me, I would get that call or text. And I find it so, I don't know, refreshing. Probably. Mm -hmm. it, it is absolutely freeing. So Brooke, you, you don't know this about me, but I have to say it because it's germane to what I'm going to say next. My dad was a funeral director and I come from a very long line of morticians. Right. And I've always joked with my mom for as long as I can remember, because sleep is very important to me. And I've always been not a good sleeper. I don't like to sleep. I feel like it's wasted time. Um, <laughs> I do not feel that way at all. I, I know. And, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm at the point in my life where I actually do appreciate nine hours of sleep. But up until recently, I really didn't like to sleep much at all. But the one thing that I didn't want is I didn't want interrupted sleep. Right. And I always joked with my mom. And again, I could say this because of, of my family's professions. You know, if somebody passed away in the middle of the night, my godmother passed away or a cousin or something like that, don't call me. Don't call me at two o'clock in the morning to let me know that somebody has died because they'll still be dead in the morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dara's shaking her head. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but again, it's it's part of that. Hey, you know what? Um, there's nothing I can do about it. Please let me sleep. Yes. And that was really just a way to stress to my mom. It better be a real emergency to call me at two o'clock in the morning. If there's something wrong, call the doctor. 
right? right. That, don't call me because I did not go to a single class that would qualify me to help you. Well, I think what you're saying is protect, protect your boundaries. There's so many different ways we can protect our boundaries. If that's via technology or just with regards to our sleep or even the things that we surround ourselves with, we can really be intentional about trying to protect our boundaries and slowing down a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And I think <laughs> I really like that example, actually, that <laughs> there is a, you know, there's, like, there's a difference between urgent and important and an emergency, you know, and they don't necessarily all need to be treated with the same sense of timeliness. So I think that that's kind of an important distinction to make. And I agree with you, Dara, that boundaries, it, for me, that's the simplest way that I can explain really what that element of slow living looks like. It's by protecting your boundaries, um, whether, as you said, Garth, that's how you use technology to do that. I mean, you're protecting your physical space by not requiring that clutter, that paperwork, whatever it may be, to be around. But you're also protecting your headspace by no longer needing to keep that information actively in your brain. And I think that's a really good example of how we can utilize technology to still slow down. I think tech yeah, gets yeah. a really bad rap and sometimes rightly so, but it gets, you know, people kind of say, well, if I'm going to live slow, I can't have a phone or I can't, you know, I can't be like a modern person who lives a connected life. Untrue. I just think it's a matter of installing the right kind of boundaries to protect the time that is that disconnected time. And I'm much the same. So I don't, my phone stays off from maybe seven or eight o'clock at night and I don't get online until after breakfast, until after I'm ready for the day, because otherwise my head just fills with information that I can't necessarily do anything with at that point in time. I don't have time to sit down and answer my emails, but if I look at my emails, that information is going to sit there on my chest, just waiting. You know, the person's still dead, but I can deal with it at 9am. Yeah. So, so I think- one of the things I do at work, and, and I can tell that this absolutely drives my coworkers crazy, I will get a phone call or a text probably three to four times a week from somebody and they say, hey, did you just see the email from so-and-so? You're like, no, uh, I didn't. And, and I, exactly. I'll say, no, I didn't because I was working on something else and my email program was closed. Right. And so it wasn't time for me to do email. And if there's a, if there's an emergency and, and I work for a company that we really don't have emergencies that are life-threatening. Mm -hmm. And the example I use is if there's an emergency, please do not email the fire department. Right. Right. You, you would pick up the phone and call 911. Yeah. So if there's an emergency within work, you should call me or text me because I can't clutter my mind. I purposely close my email so that I can work on this presentation that you need tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> and do you, I mean, do you find though that you're much more productive when you single task like that? Oh, absolutely. I used to be a huge fan of multitasking. Mm -hmm. And what I recognized was that all I was really doing was splitting up my time amongst three or four things. Yes. Yeah. And your energy wasn't like focused on that one thing and you weren't giving it probably your best work because you were like paying attention to so many different things. Exactly. And I don't need, again, th that same interruption. I, I've turned off the alert system within my email. Yeah. If I'm reading somebody else's email, I don't need to know that a new email has come in because then I'm distracted by that new thing, that new shiny thing, right? So I know that I am the only person in my organization, or at least the people that I work with, that does this. Hmm. Everybody else has Outlook open all of the time. They have it on their phone. They are constantly spending time answering emails. 
as opposed to doing the work that you could be doing to be more focused on the three times a day where you check your emails. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think that my experience has been exactly the same. I used to try and fool myself into thinking that multitasking was more a more efficient use of my time. But what I realized was I may be doing those things at 50% capacity. I wasn't doing any of them well. So I often talk about this idea of tilting instead, rather than trying to balance everything at the same time. You know, you tilt into working on the presentation and then you tilt into answering your emails and you tilt into going home and spending time with your family. And then on the weekend, you tilt into working in the garden. And, you know, what that means is that when you're doing that one thing you're tilting into, you're actively letting go of all the other things that you're not tilting into and also giving yourself permission to do that. I love that. I want to tilt more. I know. I love that analogy. I Right? Dara always talks about how I can come up with stories or analogies, and that one is probably the best one I will have heard all month. (laughs) I love that. So on the Thrive Podcast, we often share a thriving tip with our audience, which is a little nugget of extra goodness. And you have shared so much with us, Brooke, but if you could just kind of come up with one little thriving tip that you think would really help all of our listeners, we would love to hear it. I think one of the things that I've recently discovered that has been the most helpful touch point, I guess, of slowing down, even in the busiest of times, the busiest of days, is what's called a lion's breath in yoga. So on the busiest days of my book tour, when we were traveling and doing events and doing media and you know doing school and all the, all the things happened at once, and I couldn't find 15 minutes to meditate or journal. I would start every day with three deep lion's breaths. So, you know, the deepest belly breath in you can possibly take. And then you expel the breath out through your throat, make a noise like a lion, stick your tongue out, open your mouth up as wide as possible and just let it all out. And if you do that three times, the final lion's breath will almost always see you with this huge grin on your face because Mm -hmm. it's this expulsion of you know, negative energy, pent up frustration. It's the best way to either start your day or to reset when you find yourself feeling overwhelmed. Ooh, I love that. Releasing the negative so that we can make space and room for all of the positive. Exactly. I think that's fantastic. Well, so in preparation for you joining our podcast today, I really was going through hundreds of notes, uh, trying to find one that fit best for today. So my daughter is now in college. I've written thousands upon thousands of notes to her and I've cataloged almost all of them. I really talked to her about how to become this strong, confident young woman. And that's really been the crux of all of the notes over the past Mm -hmm. 13 years of school. But I found one that really dovetailed onto the passage that Dara read earlier. And the note says, Dear Emma, don't try to please everyone. It's a losing proposition and you'll just disappoint yourself. Love, Mm. Dad. Mm. I love that. I really do. What a gift to give Mm -hmm. a young person the permission from an early age to let go of this desire that we all seem to carry around with us to please everyone. Yeah, yeah, I think that's wonderful. Can I say, you know, talking before about giving the gift of time, I mean, turning up for your daughter like that for so many years is the ultimate example of giving the gift of time. You know, I think that is one of the loveliest things that I have heard in a long time. Um, Yeah, it's really inspiring. It really is. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. I'm a little bit speechless. I want to say it's something that we happened across 
truly by accident. I was the working dad. My wife was a stay-at-home mom and she spent so much time with Emma and I was a little bit jealous of that time. Mm. And so I decided early on that I needed to come up with the hook. What was the one thing that was going to be between Emma and me that would be something special for her and special for me? And so to be honest, I can't even remember all of the things that I tried, but it was a lot of different things. And the napkin notes were the one that stuck the most. Mm. And the best thing about it was that it was something that I could do every day. And it's simple, really. It right, is exactly. simple. And it turned into this really good cycle where I would get up fairly early, 5 or 5.30 in the morning, and have a little cup of coffee and make her lunch and write her note. So I was by myself thinking about her and thinking about her day and trying to give her some sort of, of inspiration or motivation for the day. And then a few hours later, as she was opening up her lunch, she had that reverse effect where she had a few seconds in the middle of her school day where she could stop and think about dad and what he was trying to say. And I know that I'm making it sound much loftier than it probably was uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, but it turned into this really, really good cycle. I mean, talk about starting your day with intention. I think that's just like a wonderful way of centering yourself in what's important and turning up for what's important, which that's what slow living is. You know, it's figuring out what's important to you and then figuring out ways of creating more space for those things by letting go of the things that aren't. You could have spent that time in the morning doing something that was less important, but instead you chose to turn up for those things that are the most important. So beautiful. Well, Brooke, tell us where our listeners can find you. The best place would be slowyourhome.com. That's my home on the internet. I don't do Twitter or Facebook anymore, but you can find me on Instagram. I'm just at Brooke McCallery. So if you head over to slowyourhome.com, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, which is where I share everything important because I know that people who want to hear from me actually get to hear from me, unlike on social media. So Lovely, lovely. And her book, Slow, Simple Living for a Frantic World, is available on Amazon. Thank you so much for being here. We just loved talking to you and hearing all of your wonderful suggestions and tips on how we can incorporate slow living into our daily lives. I'm Dara Kurtz, creator of crazyperfectlife.com. And I'm Garth Callahan, the Napkin Notes Dad. You can find out more about me at napkinnotesdad.com. Thanks for listening. Thrive is created by Dara Kurtz of Crazy Perfect Life and Garth Callahan, the Napkin Notes Dad, with the hope that we help you develop motivation and inspiration to make your life remarkable. It would mean so much to us if you shared this with your friends and family and left us a review on iTunes. Remember, you deserve to thrive. Thrive Podcast is copyrighted by Dara and Garth.